Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Why one in five people on a waiting list rejected a social home. Discuss. Leo Varadkar has insisted he retains the confidence of a majority of Fine Gael TDs and Senators. The Taoiseach was responding to weekend media reports. I'm absolutely sure that I have the confidence of the vast majority of my parliamentary party and I have done for the past six years. Former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi dies aged 86. His controversial career was dogged by sex scandals and corruption allegations. Was his legacy the rise of populist politicians like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson? Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight's VMTV. I'm joined on my first panel tonight by People Before Profit councillor Hazel de Norton, Irish independent political reporter Gabia Garbusgata, and newspaper columnist Ian O'Doherty. We did ask the government parties for a representative tonight, but nobody was available. So first we're going to talk about social housing and why one in five people on a waiting list rejected their offer. All of this in the middle of a housing and rental crisis. And I'm going to come to you first, Gabia, because this was your story in the Irish Independent today. And I suppose what's really caught people's attention is some of the reasons that were given for these rejected offers. Bring us through those. Yes, so if you look at 2021 and 2022, in total, there was just under 25,000 social housing offers that were made. And what my survey today shows is that 5,000 of those, just over 5,000 of those were rejected. Um, So I've went through all the councils in the country. Some of them haven't gotten back to me. But the data is really quite interesting because I've also gotten the reasons for some of these refusals. So... I suppose some of the most common reasons are perhaps the house is too small, perhaps the children don't all fit into it, maybe it's too far away from the local school. Um, some of the other reasons may be that, I know Kerry Council said, look, maybe the gardens don't have a shed, the motorbike, the, the prospective tenants have a motorbike, the motorbike doesn't fit into the shed, perhaps it's too close to an ex-partner. Um, and I, I think it's really important to take the the data, which is actually quite interesting because it's hundreds of offers that are being made by councils every single year. And that's a good thing because, of course, there's people on the council waiting list that are are getting offers for homes. But to take those reasons as well and try to understand why they're there. So Rory Hearn, who is, of course, a housing expert, who I'm sure your viewers know very well, he's making the point that for people of privilege, you know, it's hard for us to understand why, if you're waiting for a council home, why you may reject that offer. And waiting a long time in a lot of cases. Of course, like we know you could be years on the waiting list. And the waiting lists are shorter now than what they were in 2016. I think about they are a third less. But Rory Hearn making the point that, for example, if you were offered a home and it's too far away from your family supports, that that may be a no-go area for you. If you're saying it's too close to an ex-partner, perhaps you were in a domestic abuse situation, you don't want to be near the perpetrator. 
look, the reasons are interesting. I think it's good to see that 25,000 offers are made because that shows that there is housing that's out there. We do have opposition politicians that often say, you know, we need to build more housing on public land. I think it shows that councils are working to, you know, either build new houses or refurbish houses and put them back, I suppose, put people into them. But the, the fact the offers are made, it shows that, you know, they are working really hard. But well, it is a high refusal rate, one in, in every five. Okay, what happens if you are made an offer of a social housing and you turn it down? So there's two kinds of refusals. The council has uh, the authority to decide whether it's a reasonable refusal or an unreasonable refusal. If you do reject more than one um, reasonable offer within a 12-month period, you will be suspended temporarily from the council waiting list and you may lose your access to rent supplements. But something um, like a garden shed, there not being a garden shed, wasn't viewed as being an unreasonable reason by the council? Well, I suppose we it, it, that's not entirely clear. I mean, every situation is different, so it's up to the council to determine that. But you are able to reject an offer and not lose your place in the council waiting list. And were there counties where the rejection rate was higher than other counties? Yes, so for example, I think the highest rate last year was 38% in Kildare County Council. Um, in, the, in that area, you know, other councils saw it, but I believe it was Clare, saw just over 5%. So it really varies across the country. And it's also, um, it's not the case that rejections have gone up perhaps in 2022 than they would have the year previously. It's very varied across the board. And also, I think it's important to point out, some councils operate a choice-based letting system. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Yes. I know Meath County Council is one of the councils that have piloted this scheme. So how exactly does does that work? Yes, yeah, so some councils do use this uh, way of allocating the housing. You basically go online um, and you select what kind of a house it is that you need. And then you, that may be coming on stream or that may be on offer. And then, of course, that's the one that you've selected. So if you're offered it, you know, unless the circumstances change, you're more likely to accept it. Um, I think me that was also said, you know, ever since we put that into operation, we've actually, that's helped massively with the refusal figures. I think they went from about 30% to 10%. However, in some places that that hasn't worked, I think it was maybe Galway City Council, and they saw, I think it was a slight increase of 3%, um, even though they have that system in operation. Okay, but one of the things I suppose that struck me from this, uh, Ian, is that each council seems to make up its own rules when it comes to offering social housing in this county, in this country, rather. Well, that's councils for you, you know, that, that's, that's how they work. And I do think there's two elements to this. I think public sympathy will be in very short supply for an awful lot of the objectors. Um, because particularly from people who are paying mortgages and they find that more of their monthly salary is now going into the mortgages, the interest rates go up and stuff like that. So there is a certain amount of eye rolling at some of the objections that come in. Um, however, Do you think people should be allowed to reject an offer of a social No, service? but no, if there, there are certain reasons that are perfectly legitimate. Like what? Um, well, there was one case of an individual who didn't want to be rehomed uh, near a previously abusive domestic partner. So you kind of go, well, absolutely fine. But I remember I did a similar thing piece to Gabby at the last report when it came out a couple of years ago. And some of the excuses were just insane. I mean, there was one woman turned down a house down in Cork because I had a sea view. And she said, looking at the waves made her seasick. So there's not going to be any public sympathy for somebody who complains about something like that. There's not going to be any public sympathy for somebody who says, well, we don't have a garden shed. Tough. Lots of people don't have a garden shed and there are people who actually are paying for their own mortgages and paying for their own houses. So it's a case of actually trying to balance things and weigh things up that there are perfectly legitimate reasons to not want to Do you find most of the reasons today 
illegitimate, unreasonable excuse. No, I wouldn't. No, I, would, I wouldn't say that. I, I thought some of them, I, like one of the the maddest one that I saw in Gabby's piece was uh, there was one guy who complained because the prospective landlord wouldn't let him move in with his dangerous dog, and I was just thinking. Why do you have a dangerous dog? And why are you allowed to have a dangerous dog? Dangerous dogs are dangerous dogs. They're on the band list. Um, so a lot of people basically want the best thing they can closest to their family for nothing. Is that, is that not reasonable? I mean, um, I think one of the arguments made today not, was not, if you're on a lower not, income, you possibly need a family network than somebody on a higher income because you're going to need the support. Is, there's no such thing as a free house. The taxpayer is paying for it. It's the reason why we're paying, one of the reasons why we're paying such exorbitant rates of tax is that other people are paying for these houses. Now, I've no problem with that. We need social housing. Social housing is a vital part of the social contract between the state and individuals. And we need to have more social housing. But a lot of people, particularly in the middle of a cost of living crisis, particularly in the middle when mortgages have gone through the roof, um, sympathy is in short supply. All right, uh, Noreen, uh, or Hazel rather, Sympathy is in short supply, and actually there's a lot of eye-rolling going on here when you see some of the reasons that were put forward um, for rejecting the offer of, as Ian puts it, a free council house. Yeah, well, I have to say there's no such thing as a free house because um, tenants actually pay rent. And I think that's one myth that's been out there is that people are taken away from other stock or, or you know, are being housed in a free scale. I, I really don't like that direction when it goes that way. Um, it wouldn't now, to be fair, it wouldn't be the same rent that you'd pay in the private markets. And it wouldn't. And that's why we'd always push, push for cost rental because we should have accessibility to rental homes and that shouldn't just always be over exorbitant prices. And I do support people who are in those uh, situations as well. But just to say, um, to put on the record, it is a very complex issue with what's been spoken about today on the topic. I deal with housing cases day in, day out, every single day. And it's actually getting worse, the cases that are coming across. So if you're looking at Dublin City Council, on average, it's about 15 years before somebody will get home. And that's probably a good case. And um, when someone's coming at that stage, they've probably been living in precarious um, rents before that. They could be coming from a hotel for, uh, for three to four years, living in a small room, having no abilities to cook or clean. Um, they could be in homeless hubs. So when they get to the top of the list, they're very anxious to make sure that the decision that comes across is one where they'll be able to build their forever home. And that's the case that I see coming across. People are really very worried about that. They want to make the decision, to want to integrate into their community. They have been dreaming about it every day and night. But I suppose we just look at some of the reasons that we were given. Um, Gabby has said no garden shed, no electric car facility. I yeah, mean, and I think... Not a, there's not a private house in the country that you'd yeah. buy that you'd be guaranteed yeah. a garden shed or an electric car charging facility. No second bathroom, garden too small. I mean, these are kind of compromises that yeah. a lot of people will say, I make that in the private market all of the time. And I think the first bit that you did highlight there, they're, they're probably one-offs. I've never come across that myself. But when it does come to a garden, you could have people who have kids with additional needs and part of their care has to be that they have access to the outdoors for that child's needs and that's 100% reasonable. And there is cases where some people might downsize and when it comes to looking at the property to come from a home, it might have been a large family home and then when they're viewing an apartment and the cases, they're like, I don't know how I'm going to transition my whole life into this uh, smaller property and they can come back at a different time to make the choice. On Dublin City Council, you can make two choices, as you said, that are reasonable refusals. Yeah, I, think, I think there was a, a refusal based on the lack of storage in the property that was offered. Yeah, and that could be a case of where people are thinking, how am I going to move, like, probably the kids' lives, everything into it? And it does take a bit of a transition for people who are downsizing. And as I said, you can have two, two choices on it. And if you don't make those reasonable decisions, you are uh, refused um, another option yeah. for the yeah. rest of I, the I year. I suppose, Ian, what uh, Hazel is saying here is, you know, 
the council get to decide whether or not the reason that you've given is reasonable. And if it's unreasonable, there are consequences to it. Yeah. It's um, not but a decision that, But the thing likely. is, that, I mean, one of the cases that Gabby cited today, there's a big difference between a family of four objecting to a one-bedroom apartment, right? That obviously makes sense that you can't move a family of four into a one-bedroom apartment, as opposed to then complaining that you don't have enough storage space or you don't have a garden shed or you can't move your motorbike in or you can't bring your dog in. Um, and we live in an era of gross entitlement among so, so many people. And do you think that's what this is a lot of the time? I, I think no, I, I think on some of the cases they self-evidently are. Okay, and Hazel, would you say, would you agree or disagree with that? That no, look, there's I mean, a sense of entitlement here and actually then that is fostering a sense of resentment. I think you can take those... Aren't entitled to yeah, it. you can take those kind of cases where I don't know the background of it and you can take one or two and then try and garnish it across everybody that's been in social housing. I don't think that's a fair assumption to make. I mean, I had people on the phone to me today roaring, crying down the phone because of the situation that they're in. It's dire at the moment. And I don't think it's fair to represent it in the way that's being represented. If there is cases where people are being unrealistic, 100%, you can turn around to anybody and say, that's not going to be an option. You're never going to receive that. And I have to say, the council staff are very good in being realistic and, and transparent with people. But as I said, like we, we can't be kind of pushing the conversation towards that just to kind of you know, justify that type of language towards the situation that so many people are in. There's children that are languishing in hotels at the moment, in, ho in, in homeless hubs. And so why turn down a house then because it doesn't have a shed? Is it not better to have a kid because that, that, that's... living in a house that doesn't have a shed rather than keeping your that's kid... That's because you're picking one aspect of it, though. I mean, anybody yeah, can come along an and say, that, and nobody knows the background of that case. I'm like, that could be various. You don't know. I don't know the background of that. Usually, people come forward with a, a reasonable case. It might be an issue where they say, "I can't move into an area because of antisocial," and they, and they mightn't be but safe. But I suppose, I suppose, what Ian's in, he is quoting reasons that were given mm. in Gabby. Yeah, if I can just make the point. I mean, councils are given these reasons. But granted, I, I presume, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you are right to an extent that you know some of these reasons are a one-off and they don't happen, you know, every day of the week. But like, I did ask councils for reasons and that's what I was given. So I also presume that, you know, they happen more than once. I also will make the point that there's also a bigger question to be asked here. You know, are we building the right kind of housing and what kind of housing is being offered? I don't know, Ian, if you're correct in that. I don't think councils normally would offer, you know, if you have a family of four, I don't think they would offer mm, you a one-bedroom yeah. apartment. And I do think they're trying to work with you. It's also worth pointing out, of all the offers that are given, 80% are accepted. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ian, you'd accept that? Oh, no, absolutely. And look, the thing is, I'm a big fan of social housing. We need more of it. I'm also a big fan of council estates. I grew up in a council estate. We're not building enough council estates, right? We need to get more local authorities building more council estates. And right. that's the best way that we can get out of this. All right, I want to move on to another uh, story that was dominating the news agenda today. Leo Radker insisting that he retains the confidence of a majority of Fine Gael TDs and senators. The Taoiseach was responding to weekend media reports of unease within the Fine Gael backbenches over the party's future. I'm absolutely sure that I have the confidence of the vast majority of my parliamentary party and I have done for the past six years. Oh, look, the next election is ages away. Um, I believe it's an election uh, in which Fine Gael can gain votes. And we full employment uh, for the first time, um, or only the second time in the history of the state. We have a budget surplus. We have high life expectancy because of the improvements in our health service and health outcomes, notwithstanding the problems there. So, Gabia, it's 
never, I think, a good look, is it, for the leader of any political party, particularly when they're the Taoiseach, to be defending their leadership or answering questions about whether or not there are rumblings of discontent in the backbenches? Look, the question is, what's going on within Fine Gael? Because the answer is, it's not really quite clear. I think it was interesting. All the major three um, broadsheet newspapers across the weekend they had big spreads on Fine Gael and some of the issues that are arising. And I think we're at a really interesting point now politically because for about two and a half years, we had this madness of COVID. We had these awful restrictions and politicians and politics was really tested because leaders like Leo Varadkar and Miho Martin were making huge decisions that impacted on people's personal freedoms every single day. There was a lot of scrutiny on them. We've come through that. It's settled down a little bit. And I think people in their parties are now kind of looking introspectively and saying, okay, what's going to happen next? You know, Sinn Féin are doing extremely well in the polls. We've got the general election. It is not ages away. I mean, Leo Radker has said, you know, it could be perhaps even the autumn of next year. So I, I saw think, Simon Coveney tell a group of um, business leaders that it'll be November, I think, of next year. Yeah, we actually put prepare, a month on it. prepare for November. <laughs> so his own parliamentary party now is kind of saying, OK, what's next? We saw Simon Harris did extraordinarily well in his six months as Minister for Justice. That is being briefed out to journalists. And then also Helen McEntee, who's you know, been this trailblazer. She's been, you know, first cabinet minister to take maternity leave. She's come back from her second child, uh, having maternity leave with the second child. Even though the briefing around her was always very positive, that seems to have changed now a little bit. They're saying, well, Simon Harris had more in six months than she's okay. done. Well, let's just take a look at Simon Harris because in all those pieces mm. in uh, the Sunday papers yesterday, he was being suggested as the next leader. So let's see what he had to say. Are you briefing against your party leader? Clearly not. Uh, we're working very closely together as a Fine Gael team and I think the priority has to be to focus on delivery, delivery, delivery. Okay, so he denies that he's been briefing against um, the leader, against Leo Varadkar, but as you said, a lot of the stories yesterday in the papers had a very similar vein going through them. So somebody is plotting against Leo Varadkar at the moment. Well, something funny is afoot. I think that would be safe to say. And also, it's interesting that there seems to be now uncertainty towards Radker's position ahead of the next general election. And that previously would have never been the case. I mean, if you think even back, I think it was two years ago now, there was all these rumblings of a he, perhaps, within Fianna Fáil. How do we get Micheál Martin out? You know, those have completely died down. There was no uh, succeeder that stepped up to the plate. And now people are looking at, you know, Fianna Gael. And Leo Varadkar perhaps has indicated in the past as well, um, you know, that he maybe doesn't want to do politics into, into his later yeah, and years. Yeah, I mean, there has been rumblings too that since he came back as Taoiseach this time, that he is not as engaged but he's a with career... the leadership and with being yeah. a politician as he was at the beginning. But he's a career politician. And if you think about it, he's kind of done kind of everything now. You know, we, we don't really hear that he wants to go for a job in Brussels or Europe or perhaps, you know, head somewhere else. So maybe he's thinking, he's look, having a look and thinking and saying, OK, well, you know, what, what, what's next for me? I've been Taoiseach twice. I've been minister for all these different things. Perhaps it's time for me to hang up the mic. All right, well, we did uh, ask Finnegale to come on the programme this evening, but nobody was available. But I am sure we will come back to that story. Well, my panel is staying with me. Next is Dublin turning into a dirty old town once again. Stay with us.
You're very welcome back. Hazel, Gabia and Ian are still here with me and I'm also joined by Dublin City Councillor Mannix Flynn and on Skype this evening by Vornean Hennessy from Nace Tidy Towns Committee because we're going to talk about an editorial in the Weekend Business Post newspaper which spoke about the damage to Dublin City's reputation by the state of the capital's streets. And I'm going to come to you first, Mannix, because you compared Dublin City to a bomb site a couple of weeks ago. So you're in agreement that there is an issue here. Describe the scenes that you were referring to. Well, basically, the city streets, the footpaths, and indeed the roadways were highly stained with grease and dirt and muck. Every single street had massive amounts of litter on it. Laneways and sideways were basically running with kind of like sewage from people using them as laboratories. There was a general situation that even the seagulls were beginning to kind of think, this is too dirty for us to eat anything here. It was completely manky dirty. On the bank holiday weekend, there were 10 individuals charged with cleaning the entire street. We all saw the photographs of what was happening along the canal with the rubbish that was dumped. And that was individuals who were responsible. But the big responsibility and the big irresponsibility is Dublin City Council's lack of response to the city on a daily and regular basis. So this wasn't just a hot bank holiday weekend No, people were out and about? You get situations like that, like you do, where people dump rubbish and you get people dumping rubbish all over the place. But the situation is that the local authority who is charged with cleaning those streets on a regular basis are not doing that particular job. That is a result of cuts by Mr. Owen Keegan. It's a result of the privatisation of the waste uh, collection and management of that situation. And it's also a completely disregard and a disconnect of Dublin City Council to those particular streets. The other situation is, is that in many years ago, uh, businesses would have actually cleaned and scrubbed out with the water. But now with water charges on premises and all that, that's now not going to happen. And also, the fact is, if you clean outside your premises and somebody slips and falls, you're going to be liable for a lawsuit. But the point of the matter is, tonight in Dublin City Council, the city manager and John Flanagan, who is in charge of the environment in Dublin City Council, promised that hundreds of employees will be put onto the streets. They're bringing in private uh, uh, providers, service providers, to wash down all those streets. And I welcome that. But that needs to happen on a regular daily basis. And, and I know they have said that they do have people cleaning the streets from bright and early in the morning. It's 5.45, I think, they hit the streets in Dublin and that they do that seven days a week. But That's this, what Dublin City Council would say. Yeah, but this is a capital city. And as I said, on a bank holiday weekend, 10 individuals, they don't have enough manpower and women power to do the job. And there's a, there's a situation like tonight where we had to come to a crisis point where we had to have an editorial of a newspaper where we're weeks on the television and radio saying this is unacceptable for the City Council to respond. These are people who live in the city. Dublin City Council's offices aren't a mile away. They're not Mullingar. They're in the city centre and they see the city centre and they see the filth and dirt, not only on the streets of Dublin, but in the blocks of social housing, which are absolutely deplorable. You've got horrible situations happening in there in terms of waste management and the lack of any cleaning down of those blocks. Okay, and the footage that we are looking at today was footage that was taken in Dublin city centre a little earlier. I'm wondering, is it an issue outside of the city centre? Do you see it in the suburbs as well? Well, there has been always been conversations about how do we manage the likes of our suburbs, as you say, and we're relying on uh, the tidy towns and we're relying on residents. And that's been creeping in over the last while where we're expecting residents to take up the bibs, the pickers and the bags and go around and picking up on themselves when that usually would have been a role that Dublin City Council or South Dublin Council, whatever it may be, would have taken up. So you're relying on volunteers? Yes. 
and that's what's been managed in the city and taking care of the neighbourhoods. And I know there's been a big issue at the moment around weeds and Dublin City Council has taken on a new biodiversity role and there's all these conversations that are taking place. But the real issue, which seems to be as well, that we have stepped away from the public uh, taking care of the waste disposal and ever since then there's seen an erosion of it and we haven't never seemed to be able to keep up with the pace since then. I wonder though, Gabby, have our attitudes to littering? Changed. I mean, we talk about Dublin City Council, you're saying you see it in the suburbs as well, but I did see footage on social media over the weekend after the Harry Styles gig at Slane and God help the people who were tasked with cleaning that up. I mean, there was no respect, there was no idea, no thought to bring in your litter with you mm -hmm. or trying to find um, a bin anywhere around Slane. I mean, people just littered and walked away. Yeah, I think Una Mulally put it quite well in the Irish Times. She was saying that during the pandemic, especially, the city was in a free fall. And I think now when I go out into town and it's not as bad as it was during the pandemic, I'm a little bit relieved because you almost get used to the rubbish. But if you walk down an alleyway, I mean, you do smell mm. urine. I mean, like it is really quite unpleasant. I think it's also an important point to make. Dublin, even though our rents are comparable to other European cities and even massive capitals like New York, we are not like any other European city. We have no metro. We have no train going to the airport. You know, we don't have, the connectivity is, is not there. And obviously that willingness from the council to, to help people. You know, you step on the bus and you need coins. You might not, you can't use your phone to pay. You know, these kinds of things, we're just so behind and we don't ever seem to be moving forward. So if Dublin City Council wants to make Dublin I'm very much so European city where people are paying seven euro for a pint. And, you know, if you want to go to a concert, you're paying hundreds of euro for a ticket, then you have to put, try to make the place look clean and, is, and make it look more expensive. I'm, I'm just conscious we've three contributors here, Ian and Doherty, are all saying this is the job of Dublin City Council to clean the streets, to provide more um, people who are working in the area of cleaning up, to power hose. I think you were suggesting the streets of Dublin, Mannix. Is it all about Dublin City Council? Or no, it's, it's, funda it's, it's fundamentally the job of the individual. It's personal responsibility. And absolutely. And I find myself in the unusual position of actually agreeing with a lot of what Maddox is saying. Um, but what it boils down to, this has been a bugbear of mine for a long, long time, from the time I was a kid. And even now today, if I see somebody dropping something on the street, I'll pick it up and I'll go up after them and I'll tap them on the shoulder and I'll politely say, I think you finally dropped this. Right. Now, the response to that can be varied, to say the least. But what really annoys me about this is and that... And do you see that frequently? Absolutely. And particularly when I was working in Talbot Street, it was a daily occurrence. Um, people who don't care. It's an act of aggression against your fellow Dubliners. It's an act of aggression against your fellow citizens. And one of the things that I can't understand about this is, look, as individuals, we don't have any control over climate change. We don't have any control over biodiversity, but we do have control over our environment. And it's not just in the city itself. Uh, I was coming up here this evening, walking down round about the amount of rubbish that was there was a disgrace. Um, I have a couple of crazy little dogs that I bring out for walks. The amount of dog poop that we see in the streets. And I had a guy who lived close to me who was in a wheelchair. And like, if you stand in dog poop, it's annoying, but you can take your shoe off and you can rinse it. This poor chap, if he wheeled through it, he couldn't take his wheel off. And th this so, is what so I'm what, saying. So what's it about? Is it about education? Is it about advertising, encouraging people it's a, to it's be a, more well, conscious it's of a, littering? It's, it's about making something socially unacceptable. The state can't enforce laws on personal behaviour. It can try and catch people, but people talk about litter wardens. 
in the same way that people talk about dog wardens. And I'm convinced they're actually like leprechauns, that they don't exist. They're just stories that the government tells us about. But, they, but, but Malik, they, they, do, um, they do exist. They, they, we we they, see that people are fined for littering. They do exist, but again, it makes an interesting point. It's an act of aggression. So when these individuals interact with those people who are littering, there's usually a threat there. There's usually some, you know what I mean, consequences for that situation. And yes, there, there are people out there from Dublin City Council inspectors issuing fines and enforcing that. But the situation is, is that the city, as it stands at the moment, is filthy dirty. Some of it's down to individuals. An awful lot of it is actually down to the fact that during the pandemic and after the pandemic, we allowed on-street drinking, on-street dining, but no particular policy or plan to clean those particular streets. I was in Baggett Street recently, a beautiful street. It was absolutely filthy. And they so expect me to sit some of the businesses out... around there, do you think, and some of the companies that produce the goods that lead to a lot of the littering, whether that's, you know, cigarette butts or takeaway cartons, should they be contributing I, I, to cleaning I, up the city? I, I basically think that the general look of the city and the general look of the street when you see this kind of fake pedestrianisation and fake outdoor dining and the state of the place and the dirt and the mank. Now, don't forget, we basically did a massive job in Dublin pulling all new granite from China and Pakistan. That granite is seriously stained. The roads are seriously stained. The situation in relation to the failure of the Green Party and the failure to hit home the environmental consequences of littering and dirtying. I see people in Mercedes cars coming out with a bag of rubbish and trying to stick it into a bin. I see restaurant owners bringing up their muck and dirt and trying to put it into a bin in a social housing a big container. This is what's going on there because there's a cost to getting rid of your rubbish. We also there's need a responsibility. more street and the, Is that part of the problem? I'm just wondering because we were talking well, about maybe you know the increasing of, the fines and having more litter well, well, again, it's Do about, we have uh, enough bins on well, the, the street The number of bins has been cut, I think, in it recent has been years. It has. But, also, but also to make the point though, if something is nice and clean and tidy, aren't you more enti aren't you more enticed to keep it nice and clean and tidy? But, but if something is dirty and messy, you might say, sure, I don't care, I might but, throw but, the coffee cup on the floor. Absolutely, but the point of the matter is, is that the bins were gotten rid of because Dublin City Council decided because there was too much rubbish being dumped into them when we privatised the waste. So they got rid of right. these bins and they put but, big bins. I, I want to go, sorry, I want to go to, to Nace and to Vornine because you're a success story as a winner of Tidy Towns repeatedly. So what do you think is the answer? Is it about more litter wardens? Is it more bins? Is it more volunteers? What works? Just to correct you there, Kira, we haven't won the Tidy Towns. We'd love to, <laughs> and we will someday. No, we won the Ibal, which is the cleanest town in Ireland, two years in a row, and we may win it a third time. But to answer your question, I think it's, it is volunteers. It is. We, would, we wouldn't have won the Ibal for two years in a row if we didn't have volunteers who were willing to adopt a patch, look after it, mm manage it, take take over another area if somebody is on holidays, work as part of a group. Um, this this None of this happens unless you have the volunteers, unless you have the people on board but did you that manage take pride to, in where they live. Did you manage, Vernine, to change the culture, I suppose, the Gabby yes. that's talking about, by making yes. the area cleaner, people were more inclined yes. to you know yes. put litter in the bin or take their litter home? I, I would agree with one of your speakers there. You are less inclined to litter in a place that's clean. So it needs to be clean and it needs to be kept clean. Another one of your speakers was saying that they need to clean more often. Yes, we, we're cleaning every day of the week. Every, every week, we have just finished this evening now after doing a massive cleanup in one area. We'll go back to a different area next week. It's left clean. We won't have to go back to that area for another year. So we're really winning down in this because we've won the people over. It's all about the people. It's about them taking pride in where they live. All right, and of course, none of this happens, of course, unless we work with the council. 
We've built up a great relationship with our council and, and we work together. So what, we're a what, winning team. And in what way do the council assist you, Bernine? They assist us by giving us a grant every year to buy our litter pickers, our bags, mm -hmm. all of that sort of thing. Um, we meet with them two or three times a year and we request different things. And you get our, that our, assistance. Our, okay, I just want to put that yes, back to Mannix. Is that the answer, yeah. do you think? More volunteers, well, more people taking an interest, taking pride in the area they live in? Well, I certainly think locally, there's a huge amount of individuals locally that do that work all across Dublin, all across the country. Like they, They're out there litter picking, they're out there doing that thing for the local community. But the big issue here is the city centre. The city centre, you know what I mean, is not a place where you can bring a whole load of volunteers in to lift bags of rubbish or to, you, or to pick up needles or paraphernalia or human waste or to go out and start scrubbing the streets. This is picking up bits of litter. The city streets of Dublin are thick with grease and dirt and muck. And everybody, including the council tonight, the head of the council tonight, admitted that the city streets were appalling. And, and you want to see those parallels. And they apologise, and I accept that apology, and I welcome the efforts that they're going to make by putting many staff out there to clean those streets. But we need to bring the Barcelona model in here, where the streets have been washed down every single day, every single moment, and those that actually create offence and those that break the law are basically prosecuted immediately and issued with a fine. All right, OK, unfortunately, I have to leave it there. Uh, but my thanks to Hazel, to Vernine and to Mannix. Uh, after the break, we're going to be discussing strong men of the world of politics in hot water. Stay with us. Berlusconi, the former Italian Prime Minister, has died at the age of 86. The controversial billionaire politician led the country four times despite sex scandals and allegations of corruption. Earlier, I spoke to Europe correspondent Gerald Gibson, who told me more about Berlusconi's colourful and controversial character. Well, another former Italian Prime Minister, Matteo Renzi, really summed it up in a tweet that he put out after the news broke. He said that some people loved him and many people hated him. And that is just a, an expression of the, just the sweep of different jobs and different areas of Italian life that Silvio Berlusconi found himself in over the years. He was a singer on cruise ships as a young man. Then he went on to build his business empire in both real estate and construction, as well as in TV here in Italy and, and around Europe. And then, of course, he became a three times prime minister of Italy. But I think for an international audience rather than Italians, what he'll be remembered for is some of his scandals, you know, those famous bunga bunga parties that he held at his villa just outside Milan. He was uh, eventually convicted for uh, paying an underage woman for sex in relation to one of those parties, although that verdict was later overturned on appeal. He then also uh, was convicted on tax fraud. But as you sort of mentioned there, every single time he found himself in legal difficulty, in relation to some sort of a scandal, he was able to bounce back. And with Forza Italia, his party here in Italy, being one of the governing coalition parties, he was relevant in Italian politics right up until the day that he died. So why do you think then that he was repeatedly forgiven for these gaffes and scandals by the Italian people? Why was he the king of the comeback? 
Well, Giorgio Maloney, the Italian Prime Minister, paid a really heartfelt tribute to him via a video that she put out. She said that he taught Italians not to accept the limits that are imposed by others. And he certainly didn't really take on any limits in terms of where he wanted to go in his life. He really, if you look at the way Italy is now versus before his time in power, Italy's, Italians watch completely different TV, mostly because of Silvio Berlusconi. The world of football was massively changed by him in his 30 years at AC Milan. And of course, politics as well has completely changed here. And there are some who think that he inspired other leaders in, in other countries around the world and their style. Now, of course, the debate about his legacy here in Italy and around the world is going to go on and on for, for several days and several weeks now. But over the next couple of days here in Italy, the focus more is on mourning. There's going to be a state funeral held at Il Duomo Cathedral right in the heart of Milan on Wednesday. And the government here has also said that it's going to be a national day of mourning for a man who led this country on three separate occasions. All right, we'll leave it there. Giles Gibson, thank you for that. Gavia and Ian are still with me, and I'm also joined by Tobias Tyler from UCD's School of Politics and International Relations. Tobias, you're very welcome to the programme. Lovely to have you here in studio. What were the, I suppose, traits of somebody like Berlusconi that, first of all, drove him into politics and then made him so popular? I think what drove him was essentially narcissism. I think that was the first trait that, and of course you can argue that any politician that makes it to high office has a degree of narcissistic streak in addition to that business interests. And also I, I think what wasn't driving him was ideology. Berlusconi had very little in terms of ideology. He was politically sort of broadly to the right, but that was very amorphous. He was shifting positions all the time. So it was really personal ambition drove him. I think that was the main factor. I mean, he seems to be the type of individual that loved to be in the center of attention. Absolutely. He loved being the center of attention. He loved being, he, he loved to entertain people. I mean, all the way back to his time when he was a crooner on cruise ships, all the way to his death, he entertained people, all his scandals, all his antics. He, in a sense, he enjoyed that. He enjoyed public attention. He enjoyed the media attention. And so that was, so being in high politics, being in high office in Italy was really something that he saw. He, he saw himself as a kind of entertainer in chief. And he played that role very, very well, which I think it counts for his popularity. Yeah, you said there that he enjoyed the media, but he did more than that, didn't he? He really understood the power of the media. He understood the power of the media and he owned large parts of the media. That was part of his success. He, when private television came, uh, became big in Italy in the early 80s, he was the one who controlled most of those private television stations. And he very much used those as a mixture of entertaining people, but then also sending political messages and promoting himself. And so controlling private media, entertaining people, and of course also then using his, you know, leveraging his vast business empire to bolster his political career. That's really how he made it. And he also made it, of course, on, on top of a, a, a collapsed Italian system. The Italian political system in the 1970s and 80s was very, very corrupt. And by the early 90s, it had largely been discredited. The old parties had collapsed. Many former prime ministers, they had worked for the mafia or had other dodgy connections. And so... Berlusconi, in a sense, established his political career on the ruins of a discredited party political system. And he did this very well. Yeah, and sort of promising to be a, almost beyond politics. He wasn't a politician, and that was part of his attraction, wasn't it? I mean, you, you cannot help but draw parallels to Donald Trump. Absolutely, yes. I, I, I think, yes. The narcissism is very similar. Also, of course, all the sex scandals and all that. 
and, the manipulation and, and, of media, the understanding of the public and social media. Also, the argument, I think both of them had a very similar sales pitch. The sales pitch was, look, I've made it for myself, and now I will do the same for Italy. That was Berlusconi's sales pitch. The idea very, very much that he was not a politician. He was an anti-politician, which, of course, he wasn't, ironically. I mean, towards the end, of course, he clearly wasn't an anti-politician. He was one of the most longest-serving politicians in, in Italy. But this idea of being the anti-elite person, that kind of stuck with him, just as it stuck with Trump. And Trump, of course, also tries to cultivate that very, very carefully. Yeah, what I find so interesting is the fact that we were so aware of, or the Italians were so aware of who Berlusconi really was, and yet he continued to be re-elected. Again, we are seeing this playing out in the United States. You know, with every day, we have more and more understanding of the character of somebody like Donald Trump, and yet, uh, and we'll come to it in a minute, his polling has never been higher. What is it about the public that makes them forgive individuals like this? What is it that actually attracts them to people like this? That's a very interesting, deep psychological question. I think in part it is because uh, people like rogues, you know, people like somebody who plays within the system, but then to some extent also beats the system, who plays the system. And I think everybody kind of likes to think a little bit that they could be them. You know, there's a sort of an aspirational element in this. I think the other thing is very much, and again, this is where Trump and Berlusconi are very similar, the idea that they are the man of the people against the establishment, which of course in both cases was utterly ludicrous because know, they were their the lifestyle qu- and their wealth is yeah, so yeah. beyond the ordinary person, isn't it? Yeah, they have absolutely nothing in common with the people <laughs> whom they claim to represent, but somehow that works. So the anti-establishment candidate, you know, we are on your side against Washington or against the old corrupted system. And they both played that very, very well. And as you said, Trump in particular, no. So social media was a little bit after Berlusconi's heyday but Trump was the one who really knows how to play. The first major politician who really knows how social media worked and he really played that brilliantly very, very well. Um, another person, I suppose, you could draw some parallels in terms of some of their character traits are Boris Johnson. Um, we've seen him now finally step down from Parliament. He's no longer an MP. He's gone, but he's definitely not out, is he, Ian? No. Um, I was reading a very interesting piece about him the other day. It says, we haven't seen the last of Boris, now whether it's going to be back in the House of Commons or whether it's going to be on Strictly Come Dance and nobody actually yet knows. And Boris and possibly doesn't even know himself, because, does and This he? is the thing with Boris, is that, you know, you can't predict, you can't reasonably predict what Boris is going to do because Boris doesn't know what he's going to do. But And he's also not in the same league as Berlusconi no. and Trump. Um, I had an Italian girl from the 90s who was very cultured from Florence, very liberal... She adored Berlusconi, and I could never understand it. Because over here, he was the bad guy, like, you know, the bunga bunga parties and all this kind of stuff. But she said, he got things done, and he was only a little bit corrupt. Whereas they'd come from an Italian political climate that was rotten to the core. And I do think it's interesting, though, and it's, it's important that we should recognise that it's something the media consistently, consistently fails to grasp, is that most voters aren't voting for a spiritual pastor. They're not interested in doing a moral purity test. They want somebody who's going to get them having an extra couple of quid at the end of the month. They are we, want are somebody... we not sort of also hoping, you know, that it will be led by somebody who just has basic integrity? Like... Well, I mean, it's, it's, you'd be amazed to find out how integrity doesn't really necessarily come up very high in the list. And like with Trump, I remember meeting a Democrat who was able to visit Ireland because of the Trump tax cuts. And they said they, you know, they hated Trump, they'd voted for Hillary, but they were going to vote for Trump the next time because they were able to visit the old country based on the tax cuts. And you see, this is, 
that too many people in the media, too many, and it's not just the Irish media, too many people in the media have become self-proclaimed priests and they morally judge everybody else and they morally judge politicians according to their benchmarks and stuff like that. Whereas most people, um, they'd like to see a guy sticking it to the man. They like to see a guy sticking it to the media. And they know they're pretty imperfect themselves. And they know they're pretty imperfect themselves. So they're themselves. more reflective of the person. They get a they laugh can. out of it. And the thing is, unfortunately for those of us who work in the media, for an awful lot of ordinary people, we're seen as the enemy. We're seen as the yeah. establishment. It's not the. And, and, until I don't know if a lot of the sex scandals I've read about when it came to either Donald Trump or indeed uh, Berlusconi gave people a laugh. I'm going to just move on because I want to move on to Donald Trump because we know that he is in uh, Miami, that he is going to face uh, charges tomorrow. Very briefly, uh, Gabby, what's going to happen tomorrow? Yeah, so I suppose he is, you know, facing these charges and, and really, I mean, the curtains are really closing in on, on Donald Trump. I mean, he's in serious he's trouble here. And really, he's kind of running out of options. I mean, he's not really so much like Boris Johnson. I don't think he might appear on Strictly Come Dancing. Maybe he also doesn't know himself. But, you know, he's really been, he's obviously said he's going to run for, for president next time around. I don't know if he's going to get that bid or not. Um, people are coming up against him. He's really in a very sticky situation. He really is in trouble. Um, the press has been negative, very negative on it. And I think some of the American press might probably are happy to see his downfall. Um, and there were questions, I think, over the merit of the charges Biden uh, did in the New same York, thing, Kira. But there's not as Biden, many questions about these charges, and, uh, I think. Biden did the same thing. And what Trump and Biden did was nowhere near as bad as what Hillary did. No, I think, in fairness, I think Trump and Biden both, yes, may have kept classified the, documents, the, the, what's going to take cooperated Trump, when they were discovered what's and going Trump to take denied Trump it. Down, I think that's... What's going to take Trump down is that he tried to hide it. And yeah. it's rule number one in politics. The cover-up will kill you quicker than the crime. Um, what is interesting, though, Tobias, uh, you say, look, he's in trouble here. He's a sticky wicket. A lot of people saying there is merit to these charges that he's facing over, you know, keeping these classified documents and not cooperating. But he would say that his campaign has been bolstered and not hampered by this. Once again, feeding into this narrative, you know, I am a victim and they're trying to scapegoat me. And it's me, my followers against the media, politicians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes, his argument is that there's a conspiracy against him and there's a judicial conspiracy and that the, and that the Democrats are using the judicial system, which, to be fair, it, you know, it, it's not entirely wrong. You know, both parties are using the judicial system to try to get rid of their opponents. So this is not just a... a so, so, so there is some truth to that. But I think, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I agree that those most recent charges, if you see those, uh, you know, this, those, well, allegedly those nuclear secrets which he kept in his bathroom, I, I think that, that does look pretty bad for him. Now, the problem is that for him, it's, it, it may boost his popularity among his core followers, but I think among a wider American public where he would have to win the election, I think Who he needs. they've had enough of him, I think. All right, look, that's it from us. Uh, my thanks to all of my guests. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. But from all of the late team here on The Tonight Show, good night. Take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.